clarify something that Ken said. If a kid fills out that sermon note packet <laughs> and turns it in the cafe, you'll get a free donut. Mike Preston, if you fill it out, no guarantees. So I just want to make sure that we're clear on that. Also, um, now that we're out of September, last month was our reach month where we were prayerfully asking God to give us one person that we could share the gospel with, one person that God had put in our circle of influence that we could share and proclaim our testimony and our faith to. And a number of you wrote their names on the board. A few of you drew drew pictures. Thank you for that. Um, But I was praying for you. And if you have a story that you'd like to share, If there's an experience in the midst of that that you want me to know, I would love to hear it. You can email at info at cvcchurch.org. I would love to hear your stories. How did that go when you started that spiritual conversation with them for the first time? What happened? What did you see God do in your life and in theirs? I'd certainly love to hear those personally. If you're like, Brian, I have such a story. I want to share it with more than you. I want to share it with everyone. How about our friends of Chino Valley Community Church Facebook group? There's 1.4 thousand members on it, and they would love to hear your testimony. Man, there's one thing that we want to encourage you to share your faith. We want to pray uh, to God to give us courage, and then we want to celebrate what God does. So I want to encourage you, if you shared your faith and you have a great story, even if you don't have a great story, maybe it's a horrible story, maybe it went horribly wrong, share it, because we've all been there too. Let me know, post it on the Facebook page. We'd love to see those. And so if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Acts chapter 15. We have officially crossed the halfway mark in our study of Acts. And what a great first half it was. It began with Acts chapter 1-8, right? This promise of Jesus before he ascended into heaven right? We have that verse right up here. Acts 1a says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Why? So you'll be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and as as far as the remotest parts of the earth. Like this was Jesus' last statement as he's ascending into heaven. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my ambassadors, the proclaimers of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the globe. That was the empowerment at the beginning of Acts. And we witnessed that movement begin after a short time of waiting. The disciples were in an upper room praying, and then the presence of God entered like a pillar of fire, then exploded and roughly 120 equal pieces landing on every believer's head as a sign, as a symbol that the presence and the empowerment of God rested on each individual, we equally. This wasn't gonna be a movement of superstars. This wasn't a movement of, of special. This is a movement of everybody empowered to be an ambassador of the gospel of Christ. And these 120 people, we saw amazing things happen. God adding to their numbers day by day, 
large crowds of people. We saw amazing unity come within the church and generosity amongst the people. Their miraculous things that they witnessed in their midst. And then we watched the church go from Jerusalem throughout all Judea. Then we watched it go to Samaria and we even began to see it sneak into other parts of the globe as all the Jews spread because of persecution. But recently, the church of Antioch took the next big step where they felt led by God to send out Paul and Barnabas on the first ever missionary trip to the Gentiles. The missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, and we followed this map all around. It began in Cyprus. And there were great times. There were experiences of power and glory and great responses. But there were also struggles. They ran into false teachers. There was great division. There were threats of violence. And even recently, last week, where Paul was stoned and left for dead. But there's also good things. The island of Cyprus, the leader of that island, the political leader of that island came to faith, trusting who Jesus was. In Antioch and Pisidia at the top, the entire city nearly came out to hear the gospel. Great numbers of people came to know Jesus in Iconium. Lystra people heard about the the true God who created everything, likely many for the first time. There were churches started. There were Christians strengthened. There were elders set up. I mean, this was a tremendously fruitful ministry. And when Paul came back to, to Antioch, all the way at the start, he reported all of this stuff that had gone on. And we like to have this opinion that everyone would love it. I mean, who doesn't want to see churches started? Who doesn't want to see ministry occur? Who doesn't want to see people giving their lives to Jesus for the first time? We have this opinion that Paul came back and all of Christendom would rejoice, right? Wrong. That's what takes us into the second half of Acts. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 holds an iconic moment within this new and powerful movement where church leaders came together in order to clarify some important principles for Christians that will set the stage for the next 14 chapters and still greatly influence how Christians and churches should move forward still today. If you have your Bibles and you haven't already, you can join me in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. We're in Acts chapter 15. Let's just read verse 1. It says this, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. This is right after Paul gave this great report to the church in Antioch, chapter 15, verse 1. Now some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
Like all of a sudden, after all that work, after all that ministry, after all the miraculous things that Jesus had done through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, these guys came down and said, no, no, no. You need to be circumcised. And I'm not going to get into a lot of graphic detail of what circumcision is. If you don't know what it is, you can talk to me later. Talk to your parents. We're not going to do that. But I do want to talk to you about why circumcision was so important. Put your thumbs in Acts for a minute, and let's flip over to the very beginning, Genesis, Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. Starting in verse 10. If you're not familiar with circumcision, it's something that was instituted by God back in Genesis as a sign of his covenant and his commitment to his people. Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 10, this is God speaking to Abraham. He said, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall be my covenant. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Man, from the very beginning of God's covenant with Abraham, circumcision was an important part of it. But it wasn't just for Jews. It also became an important aspect for Gentiles who wanted to follow God, who wanted to be a part of that movement. Go on to the next book to the left, Exodus chapter 12. I want to show you this, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12, verse 43, starting there. This is God talking about the Passover. All of Israel is enslaved in Egypt. They'd gone through nine plagues. It's time for that final plague where the angel of the Lord would come through and take the firstborn. And then the people of God were instructed to put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their house. And a promise was made. And the angel would pass over. And then they're given a meal, a celebration, and how they're to eat it. But look at a portion of that, Exodus 12, 43. Listen to what God says to Moses and Aaron. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigners to eat of it. But every man's slave purchases money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall need out of, should not eat of it. It is, not to, it is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. Look at verse 20, 48. 
But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates a Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it. He shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised may eat of it. So circumcision was something for Israel, and if you wanted to be a part of that movement, if you wanted to dedicate your life to God, circumcision was important. You need to understand at this time, most believe these men right here at this time, later on it gets a little nuttier. At this time, most people believe these are good people. These are good people who are well-intentioned, albeit a bit overzealous in regards to their relationship with God. I love how Lloyd Ogilvy, Lord Ogilvy is an old-time preacher. He's now in glory. This is what he said about this. He said this, Think of the stability of the Pharisees' training in Hebrewism, his immersion in Mosaic law and tradition, his pride in being part of the chosen people of God. Live in his shoes as we relive the steps of his rigorous education and joyous participation in Israel's customs. Feel the loving arms of parents and family as he is circumcised on the eighth day. Catch the awe and wonder he felt sitting at the feet of the elder Pharisee studying the scriptures. Identify with the pride he felt when he became a son of the law at his bar mitzvah. Become one with him as he grew to full manhood and earned the revered status of a Pharisee. Consider how he must have burst with satisfaction as he put on the dignified robes of a leader of Israel. For centuries, if someone wanted full communion with God, they needed to be circumcised. For centuries, if someone wanted communion with God, they needed to be circumcised. So these men were just continuing that standard. If someone wants full communion with Jesus and his people, circumcision is necessary. If a Gentile wants to be Christian, great, hallelujah, but he's got to become a Jew first. That was their statement. If a Gentile wants to be a Christian, great. But first, they have to become something else in life. Now, most of us, we've grown up in the church. We roll our eyes and say, how foolish, how crazy. How could they be so short-sighted? But don't you think we still struggle with adding steps to salvation? I mean, there are some who believe that two true Christians need to be a part of a certain political party. True Christians, if you really want to be a Christian, you've got to be baptized by this specific group of people. Two Christians don't smoke, they don't chew, and they don't hang out with any people who do. Right? True Christians dress a certain way, worship a certain way, speak a certain way. I was thinking this week... What conditions do we add to the gospel when we proclaim it to others? What conditions do you think we add our philosophy of life, our styles of how to live? What conditions? I'm not sure it's just these early Pharisees. Well, you got to know, if you know Paul and Barnabas at this point, they're not going to roll with this. 
You got to know they're not going to be okay with it. So let's keep going. Verse two, some of you are clock watchers. You're like, man, Brian, I don't know how we're going to get 34 more verses. Trust me, we'll do it. Verse two, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. Man, I love that. Can you imagine being Paul? He just got stoned for this. He has been deformed for the gospel. He is irreparably changed because of the suffering he endured on just this first missionary journey and this message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And here's these guys saying, no, no, no. You got to do more. You know Paul isn't going to sit down for that. I love Luke. He's a good Christian man. He said, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension, that's Bible talk for a huge brouhaha a place where Paul drew the line in the sand that these guys better not cross. These guys were getting, getting in each other's faces over this. I mean, this was hot. It also says they debated, heated dialogue, intense arguing, became a huge controversy in the area. You had these Pharisees coming down from Judea, and then you had Paul and Barnabas head-to-head on this issue. But I love how the church responded. Let's keep going. Paul and Barnabas had great dissension debate with these Pharisees. And so look what happened. The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren When they arrived at Jerusalem, they received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Two things I notice in this. First, the church leaders. Man, they were committed to unity. Do you see that? There's this sharp debate. There's this dissension. There's a lack of agreement. The church of Antioch could have very well said, okay, forget it. Now we're the second church of Christ. You have the church of the circumcision and the church of the uncircumcision. We're going to create our own new logo and have our own new movement. They could have just done that. But they had a commitment to the kingdom of God. Say, no, 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 we need to fix this. So they sent Paul and Barnabas and others back to Judea, back to Jerusalem to get unity together to figure this out, to get this right. I also love the fact that Paul and Barnabas were preaching all the way down. You notice that? Every time they stopped in the city, they were talking about what God was doing. And that was in their heart. Paul lived for this. And everyone loved it. Everyone is in agreement. They finally arrived at Jerusalem. They were received by the church, the apostles, the elders. And they reported everything that God had done. But now you're starting to look for these, right? Verse 5, big biblical but right there. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and saying, again, look, look at that, Pharisees who had believed. I mean, these are Christians, people who left Judaism for Christ, likely sacrificing family and position Like, these are good people. 
And they said it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Verse 6, then the apostles and the elders came together to look into, into this matter. And these men were convinced if someone wanted to be saved, they needed to follow Moses and Jesus. If you want to find mercy at Calvary, you have to first stop and show respect at Mount Sinai. The apostles are in a tough spot. You have this evident movement of God going in one direction, but then you also have these good people who love Jesus, who are stuck in culture, who for centuries believed that if you want communion with God, you have to go through this ritual and through this rite. And this issue wasn't taken lightly. This is the problem. It's at a crossroads of the church. Is salvation by grace and faith alone a real thing? Or is it based on how you live your life? Well, no one really knows how long this discussion continued. But the next portion of scripture shows what I call the precedent. You have the problem. Hey, for centuries you had to get circumcised to be right with God. Why has that changed? And so people debated. It had to have gone on forever. But then Peter shows up again. You all know how big of an issue this is. Peter, remember Peter? After he was arrested had that angelic jailbreak, and then he took off to minister in another part of town. Peter came back into town for this. You know Peter. I wonder how long he just sat there and listened. I mean, he had to have been chewing his nails, tapping his toes, like he's got to be going crazy. Until finally he stood up. And you have the precedent. The precedent of God, first according to Peter. The precedent... People are arguing, I think God wants this, I think God wants this. Finally, Peter can't stand it anymore. Verse 7, after there, after there had been much debate, and after they just beat this dead horse to death, Peter stood up. He's like, I can't handle it anymore. Peter stood up and he said, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth and Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter stands up and says, what are we arguing about? You guys know the vision I had. You guys know that an angel appeared to Cornelius? Man, you know I struggled with it. But you know God showed up. That entire household got saved. And before any cutlery came out, the Holy Spirit descended on them. Peter didn't even get to finish his sermon. You remember that? God interrupted Peter. 
But I was like, look, God moved outside of circumcision. And I love what he says. He says, why are you putting God to the test? And if the law couldn't save us, why are we burdening it, placing that burden on them? Peter says, we all recognize that circumcision wasn't enough, that we needed the grace of Jesus. So why are you testing God? Why are you placing yourselves in opposition to God? Why are you putting this burden of circumcision that you recognize wasn't enough for communion with God? Why are we putting that on them? I like how Paul summarizes this in Galatians chapter 3. Look what he said. Paul saying, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. He continues, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. Man, the law was important. It led us to Christ. But now that Christ came, we're not under that. Look at his summary, verse 11. It became the first, what I believe, mic drop moment in the early church. Peter, listen to his conclusion. He says this, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Look at the beginning of verse 12, and all the people kept silent. I mean, people must have been arguing and bantering and fighting about everything. Peter stands up and says, you know God started this, right? You know, Jesus saved the Gentiles. He interrupted my sermon. There was no circumcision involved. The Holy Spirit was given to them. And look at what he says, because most people would think that he would say, look, Gentiles are saved the same way we are, but he didn't. He says, we believe that we are saved through grace in the same way they are. He didn't make Jews the hierarchy. Hey, look, you know they're saved just like we are. That's not what he said. He said, we're saved just like they are. Through the grace of Jesus and all the people kept silent. There's that comment. Peter, sharing the precedent of God that God started it. It caused everyone to just sit down and zip it. And then Paul and Barnabas started Peter said, Jesus started it. And then he said, Paul and Barnabas said, and Jesus continued it. Look again, verse 12, all the people kept silent. And then they were listening to Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul, as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Peter said, Jesus started this all. You remember that? Paul and Barnabas, now they give their precedent. And look, when we're in the midst of it, presenting the gospel, here's everything God did. And there's a false teacher. God blinded him. Hundreds and hundreds, this entire city came out to hear the gospel. There are elders made in all of these churches. God was doing miraculous things. A, a lame man was healed through his power. 
Paul and Barnabas say, listen, not only did God start it, but God continued it, this movement in us. But there's one more witness to the precedent of God. You had Peter who came out of hiding. You had Barnabas and Paul. And lastly, you had James. James, the brother of Jesus, he was also known as James the Just because of his piety and purity in daily life. He was known as old camel knees since his knees evidently were amazingly just largely calloused because of hours of prayer on his knees that he spent every day. He had a great reputation inside the movement of Christ and outside the movement of Christ. He was likely the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem and he served as the moderator of this council. James was known to be sensitive to Jews who had left Judaism to come over into being disciples and followers of Jesus. No doubt the Pharisees likely thought that they had this in the bag because James was the moderator, James was the bishop, James probably sided with them. But look at the precedent according to James. Peter said God started it. Paul and Barnabas said God continued it. Look what James says. Verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, talking about Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. He said, how God first concerned himself. That term, concerned himself, that phrase means that God wanted to show mercy towards them. God wanted to assist someone who was afflicted. God wanted to care for someone who was lacking any sort of opportunity or chance. Like, this is something God wanted to do. Listen, this is God's thing, James says. I agree with Peter. This is what God is doing. And look at to what extent. He said he concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Man, that seems super close. Shockingly similar to what Israel called, was called for. James is saying that God called the Gentiles to be a reflection of his glory. Just like he had called the Jews. And then he goes to Amos an Old Testament prophet. After talking about the destruction, the judgment that's coming because of their sin, he gives a portion in talking about the restoration of God. Verse 16, it says, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. James says, listen, not only is this God's thing, and not only has God been continuing it, this has been God's plan all along. I love how Paul summarizes it in Galatians 3. What Paul says, says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, if you are, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. You have this precedent. I want to make sure you understand this wasn't something that the church just kind of swept under the carpet. I mean, these guys fought over it. But Peter, Paul, Barnabas, James, quoting scripture, the word of God, like it was biblically focused. This is God's thing. And you're either with his thing or you're not. It doesn't do any good to be the church of Christ and be in opposition to Christ. You have the problem, you have the precedent, and finally the proclamation. So what's the result? Where do we land? Verse 19. I'm going to read quite a bit here. This is what it says. So James, after he makes his final precedent, he makes his proclamation. He says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, as in every city, those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath... Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles, the elders, with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And Judas called Barabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They sent this letter to them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia and all from, all from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number who, have, who we gave no instruction. Look, we didn't say that. We didn't tell them to go to you. And they have disturbed you with their words. You're questioning your salvation. You're wondering if this has all been a ruse, like you're troubled in your soul. Verse 25, it seemed good to us then, having become of one mind. Listen, we're all unified. We're unanimous in this. This wasn't a split decision. I know that we weren't all in agreement before. We are now. We're of one mind. We're unanimous. We're unified. We're committed. It seemed good to us now, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Two things I want you to notice. Number one, number one they were unified. They're in one mind. Man, there was no more debate after this. Salvation is by grace and faith alone, not in how you live your life. It's not based on what you've done. Second, I want to go back to verse 19. Look what he said. He said, therefore, it's my judgment. We do not want to trouble those who are turning to God. The term trouble means to harass, add hurdles, make it difficult. Listen, it's not our job to filter people out for God. God did that. With Jesus. It's not our job to determine. It's not our job to filter. 
It's not our job to add hurdles and hoops to make sure you mean it. That's not our job. Later on in verse 28, he says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden. The term burden means an unmanageable weight, a hardship, an abundance of misery. Man, just because we suffered before we found Jesus doesn't mean you need to. And then Paul Paul gave principles. I think two principles that we need to be reminded of today as we close. Principle number one, don't place non-biblical requirements on others. Don't place non-biblical requirements on others. What's that mean for us? Don't make areas of preference or culture essentials for salvation. Issues like how to dress, style of music, political party or lack thereof, or one's spiritual disciplines or lack thereof. I I have to tell you, I think there's been a lot of damage done to souls of Christians by adding things like daily scripture readings as a sign of salvation. I think there's been a lot of damage to Christendom by adding things like a hunger for prayer or some side of drive to be a social justice warrior. If you're a Christian, if you truly are saved and you don't have this hunger when you first wake up in the morning, and there's, I, I don't know if that's true. Man, if you're not out there picketing against so-and-so, how can you be saved? Man, if you go to that church, if you stay at that church, if you watch that church online, whoo! Principle number one, don't place non-biblical requirements on others' salvation. Don't do it. Salvation is not the grace of God plus anything. Salvation is based on the grace of God alone. End of story. Salvation is not your thing to protect. It's not your thing to filter. It's not your thing to approve. Salvation is God's thing that he offers, he paid for, and he affirms. I love how Paul said it in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Can you imagine if churches started taking credit for the salvation of others? Principle number one, don't place non-biblical requirements on, the, uh, on others' salvation. Second, this is something I want to make sure you see. Second principle, be willing to sacrifice freedoms for others. I want to camp on this just for a moment because we see this in James' letter. First, don't place non-biblical requirements on others. Number two, be willing to sacrifice your freedom for others. Look at James's letter. James says, number one, no fornication. Hey, Gentiles, we don't want to put any unnecessary burdens on you, but the temple prostitutes, they're off limits. No fornication. Nothing outside of marriage. You're not married, wait. 
you are married, stay there. No fornication. Number two, no idolatry. Listen, y'all worshiped everything. Even didn't know their names and you worshiped that. Stop it. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols because that's a weakness for you. Don't do it. Make a complete break so that your friends see something different. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. No fornication, no idolatry. Number three, no rare steaks. You're like, what? Temple prostitutes we get, right? Idolatry we get, right? Rare steak, what's up with that? Watch what I eat? Why does that care? Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Unity within the church is important. You had Jewish people for centuries eating a certain way, avoiding certain foods, and avoiding certain people who would eat certain foods. James says, listen, these guys are letting go of circumcision for you. You let go of rare meat for them. Cook your steak longer for the sake of unity. That's what he's telling them. That's not what I'm telling you. You want to eat rare steak today? Knock yourself out. But be willing to let go of your personal freedoms for the unity of others. Man, you want to know a great example of that? Can I just be honest with you? When I became the lead pastor in my early 30s, we made a real commitment. We're going after young families. I go, that was, that was the future, that was our community, that was our demographic. And we started shifting our worship style to really focus on 40s and down is something that would make sense to them. And we had a large portion of 60s and up, still do. And I went and talked to them. I know you love the grand piano. I know you love hymns every day, all day long. But we think we need to go this way so that this next group of people would find this place home. You know what they did? All of them. Not one left. Not one quit giving. Not one stop leading. All of them gave up their preference for worship for the body. Fellowship and unity of the church was essential for the church back then and ought to be essential for us today. Look what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 9. I love his attitude. He said, for though I am free... I am free from all men. I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, 
so that I might win those who are under the law. He continues, he said, to those who are without the law is without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul says, I don't care about style. I don't care about preference. I don't care about comfort. I will do whatever it takes and become anything I need to become in order to see the unified church of Christ grow in the image of Jesus himself. Great principles for us, man. Number one, don't put non-biblical requirements on others even though it's important for your philosophy, even though it's important for your culture, even if you grew up that way, man, if it's not in scripture, don't put those requirements on other people. And secondly, be willing to give up some of your freedoms for the spiritual growth and development of others. Let me just read how it ends here. Verse 30, so when they all sent away, they went down to Antioch, having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. See, I'm not the only one. After they had spent time there, they sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. And the result of this, yeah, there was heat, there was dissension, there was struggle. The precedent of God was set. Proclamations were made that brought unity, encouragement, and rejoicing throughout. The goal was the church would be unified and have confidence in the gospel of Christ. At that council, Salvation by grace and faith alone was made apparent to everyone who was there. And it's something that we remember every month. Because it's important us to remember about the essentials of faith, what unifies us together. First element of that is the bread. Or Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. You want a symbol of my devotion to you? Jesus says, this is my body, and he broke it into pieces. I'm doing this so that you might experience salvation. I'm paying the penalty for your sins. I'm taking your punishment. I am enduring, I am enduring your shame. Man, the gospel of salvation is not our thing. It's God's thing. And he suffered for it. And then Jesus took the cup, the cup of the covenant, and said, this is a new covenant. It's poured out in my blood. It is so powerful, it declares you righteous. It cleanses you from every evil deed that you've ever done in your life or ever will do in your life. 
It not only cleanses you from your brokenness, but it empowers you for the glory of God. And that's salvation. It's not based in culture. It's not based in style. It's not based in preference. It's based on the gift of God made available to you. Where are you putting unnecessary burdens on others that aren't found in Scripture? And what's a freedom that you're willing to give up for the sake of unity and growth in the body? Maybe you're here saying, Brian, I don't think I've ever received that forgiveness. I don't think I have communion with God. That's something we can handle together right now. Let's pray. Jesus, many of us are here today because we believe in your power. We believe in your glory. We believe in your promise to forgive. God, for many of us here, we ask that you continue to grow us, hold us accountable. God, protect us from adding our style, our preference, our desires to your message of salvation. And God, fill us with the heart of Paul. God, who would sacrifice everything God, that people might find their salvation in you. God, give us that courage and that commitment to sacrifice our freedoms for the unity of your church and the glory of your name. Father, if there's someone here who has yet to receive the freedom of your sacrifice, who still feels burdened by their sin, buried in their guilt, worried about your judgment. God, our prayer always is that they will see you as we do. God, give them confidence in your mercy. God, give them humility in their heart that they would just come clean and repent of their failures to you. And Jesus, as they do that, I ask that you would respond as you've promised to forgive them of their sins and to fill them with your spirit. They might have a new beginning today. And may your peace that surpasses all human comprehension fill their heart and their mind as they trust you. Now, Jesus, we ask that you would again unify our church and the one thing that meets all of our needs the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that unifies us to yourself. I pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.